0: We are starting a new series. Uh, The series is called uh, Wonderfully Made, uh, and we're going to be going through uh, various topics throughout the series. Uh, We're going to be talking about what it means to be made in the image of God. We're going to be talking about manhood, womanhood. We'll cover marriage, sex. Things like that, uh, maybe a lot of topics that you don't typically hear about a whole lot in church, but it's topics that we need to talk about because it's real life for us. It's things that we actually face in real life, and the Bible, believe it or not, has a lot to say about those topics. Uh, so it's going to be a six-week series, uh, and specifically, we're going to be looking at the similarities and the distinctiveness of males and females as well as uh, God's design regarding sex and marriage and singleness and all those things. And I want to preface up front, uh, some of you may not have heard of him, but some of you may have. I I owe uh, a great debt to Matt Chandler, uh, who's helped me a lot in preparing for this sermon series. He's a pastor uh, in uh, Texas, and uh, I don't know him personally. I wish I did because he's pretty awesome. But uh, anyways, he's helped me greatly as I've studied for this. So God has designed specific roles for men and women. So being a man and being a woman is more than just anatomy, right? What makes a man a man is not just that uh, he has testosterone going through his body and that he has male genitalia, okay? And by the way, I'm going to say things like that, so let's just get comfortable with it now, all right? (laughs) Like, let's we're, we're all adults here, and so we can talk about these things. But that's not what makes a man a man, because 12-year-old boys have that. And we would not call a 12-year-old boy a man, right? We wouldn't look at a 12-year-old boy and go, wow, look at that man right there. No, it's a boy, right? And the reverse is true for women, right? Just uh, anatomy is not what makes a female a woman, right? Uh, Their girls grow up to be women, right? So there's a, a lot of confusion today. Over uh, Not just over what makes a man a man and what makes a woman a woman, but even in today's world, especially in the last 10 years, there's confusion today over whether someone is a man or a woman. Really. If gender is binary or if it's fluid, right? Those are real issues that we face. Uh, and so here's, I want to go ahead and stop right here and I want to preface this, okay? There are some things that we're going to talk about that will seem maybe silly to some of you, Uh, But for others, it's a real struggle, or it might be a real struggle for somebody that you know, all right? And so we always say that we want this to be a safe place for anybody to come and learn. And we at Fellowship Oshawa and myself have a deep compassion for those who are struggling with these things, all right? And so we never want this to be so, you know, like maybe some of this stuff is going to sound completely foreign to you, but you have to remember that you know there may be people around you where this is a real issue in their life. And so as we discuss these things and we tell the truth, we're going to do so with compassion and with love, all right? Because there's not one person in this room who's without sin. Amen. Not a single person in here is without sin. The gospel is for everybody. Now, we're not going to compromise, and we're not going to stop telling the truth, nor will we withhold grace from anybody, all right? So the gospel is for everyone. Here's here's one of the reasons, one of the main reasons that I, I felt like we needed to have this sermon series. There is mass confusion today regarding these things. There is mass confusion, uh, and, and that may actually be, putting it kindly, uh, a better word may be delusion. There's mass delusion regarding uh, gender roles and, and what it even means to be a human being today in our culture. Uh, Facebook, for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. Facebook uh, now has 72 different gender options to choose from. 72 different gender options to choose from. A couple of them would be uh, asexual, androgynous, bigender, polygender, intersex, transsexual, agender, gender variant, two-spirit, the list goes on and on and on and on. And these are, these are recent developments, okay? This, isn't sub- I mean, this is like within the past 10 years we've moved at light speed in this direction. I read another sad story about a, a, a woman named uh, Kyle Myers, uh, and she's raising her two-year-old uh, whose name is Zoomer, and I was like, all right, that's cool, you know, <laughs> I haven't heard Zoomer before, but you know, whatever. Um, but um, she's raising Zoomer to be a fabie, a, phaby. a phaby. Uh A thaby is a gender-neutral baby. Uh, here's a quote uh, in the article from her. She said, sure. There are biological differences among the sexes. I get that. But once I was exposed to it, I couldn't unsee or unlearn that gender is a social construction. So let me try to pick apart what she just said there. She just said that gender, there are biological differences among the sexes. And then she said, but gender is a social construction. So essentially what she just, it would be like me saying, this music stand is black, but actually it's white right? So, this, it's an example of confusion, right, that we have over these topics today in our culture. And, I mean, there were tons of stories I could have chosen from. We just don't have time to go through them, but there are tons of stories just like this. It's not just confusion over binary and or fluid gender, though. Uh, there, there's also confusion now over what it means to be a man and a woman, so for example is the essence of manhood really how far you can stick your chest out or how much money you have or your sexual prowess is that really what manhood is because that's what the culture's telling us right I mean that's what advertisements tell us that's what we get bombarded with that's what it means to be a man but is that really true is the essence of woman womanhood really how you know sexy you look is it how independent you are is, it, is that what it means to be a woman? Because that's what the culture is discipling ladies to believe today. Uh, something we're going to come back to again and again in this series is, is this. It's God's design, staying within God's design leads to human flourishing, and departing from his design leads to disaster. Staying within God's design leads to human flourishing, and departing from his design leads to disaster. So if that's true, then it's pretty important that we know what God's design is, Right? And so that's, what, that's one of the reasons we're going to go through this series and we're going to talk about these things. So what I hope you will be open to seeing throughout this series, no matter where you're at, I just I'll, I'll plead with you, I want you to be open throughout this series to seeing that you were wonderfully made and designed in the image of God, okay? You are not an accident, and what you do with your life and with your body matters. And your gender matters. God made you that way for a reason. So let's start off by answering a basic question. Why did God make you? Why did God make you? Well, the short answer is for his glory. Uh, Isaiah 43, 7, God says, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. The Westminster Catechism, which is basically a big theological document or statement, Um, that uh, a lot of our theology is based in today as Protestants, Uh, the first line says this, the first article says, man's chief end or number one role is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And by the way, back then in 1646, when they said man, they meant people. So man and woman's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So what this tells us is that life is not about you. It's not about you. Is that blowing anybody's mind right now? Is that a revelation? Yeah? Well, so, I mean, because let's be honest. All of us have a tendency to kind of think that way, don't we? Like, we do. We're naturally, we tend to be selfish people, right, in our, in our nature. But the earth does not revolve around Jared. It revolves around God. God made you and he made me for his pleasure. Do you know that? He made us for his pleasure. Now, maybe you're thinking, that sounds a little narcissistic. Anybody know narcissistic means? Remember Narcissus, the, the Greek uh, mythology? So Narcissus was the one who uh, he started looking at his reflection in the water and he loved how, much that he, he, uh, how, how good he looked, that he just never left. And he ended up dying, sitting by the water. He stayed there for decades and decades just gazing at himself. His name was Narcissus. That's where we get the word narcissism. You're welcome. You just learned something at church. So here, here's the deal. It, it sounds narcissistic, but, but the, the thing is, that's because it's right for God to be narcissistic. Because if God is truly the greatest being in reality in the universe, then why would God be about anybody else's glory? It doesn't make sense for God to be about anybody else's glory or to revolve his attention around anybody else except himself if he is, in fact, the greatest reality in the universe. So what does it look like for us to glorify God? Uh, I love the way that Psalm chapter 100, 100, excuse me, verse 2 and 3 puts it. Here's what it says. says, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So the first thing it looks like to glorify God is to know that he is the Lord. That, that word Lord means he's sovereign over everything. He's in charge, not me. He's the one that the universe revolves around, not me. And, and when we acknowledge that, when we know that, and when we confess that, then that makes an impact on our life because we can't just make decisions about our, our, our everyday lives without thinking about, well, what does God say about these things, right? Like that has to matter if we're going to know that the Lord, he is God. That's one of the ways we glorify him. And then it says in verse two, it says, serve him with gladness, come into his presence with singing. So we Our lives become about how can I serve God by the way that I act when I'm at work and by the way that I treat my spouse and by the way that I parent my kids. How am I bringing God glory in the everyday things of life? God, what's amazing uh, is that God first crowned you with glory so that you would give Him glory. Psalm chapter 8, verse 5 actually says that uh, it, 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 it goes off and David starts, what is man? He's praying, what is man that you are mindful of him and, and the son of man that you would care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Have you ever thought about that? That God, the, the Bible says God crowned you with glory and honor. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? How are we so special? How are we cl- crowned with glory and honor? Well, Let's go to Genesis chapter one for the answer. Genesis one, twenty four and twenty six, and we'll see, or twenty four to twenty eight, and we'll see exactly how we are crowned with glory and honor. It'll it'll be on the screen behind me as well. And God said, "Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, stock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds." And it was so. We, did, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but the first six days, at the end of each day, if you've read the creation narratives, it says, and God saw that it was good, right? Like every, every, after every day. Would you notice, after God makes man, what does it say? Later on in, in, in the chapter, it says, God saw that it was very good. The Hebrew, uh, so there's no Hebrew word for very, so it literally just repeats. So it says, God saw that it was good, good. So that means that it was like really good, not just good, but good, good right? God said, let us make man in our image, right? And that gives us a picture of, of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existing in perfect unity. Uh, Matt Chandler says this, he says, out of the overflow of their unity, joy, and perfection, they begin to paint on the canvas of creation their glory, God's glory, and then In the vastness of this universe, on this tiny little dirt ball in one of the smaller solar systems in this expansive universe, God places his crown jewel of all creation. That's you. His crown jewel of all creation, men and women, made in his image and placed with dominion and authority as viceroys, which basically is like delegates, right? Like, uh, or an ambassador. So you and I as people are different. We're different than everything else in creation. We're different than all the rest of the animals. Every single human being holds special, intrinsic value simply because you're made in the image of God. I don't care what kind of deformity you were born with. I don't care if you're a vegetable in a coma. Your life matters because you were made in the image of God. If, let's put it like this. If you found a human body while you were going for a walk in the woods, a dead human body, what would you do? What would you do? Well, I'd probably freak out. That's the first thing I would do. And then there would probably be an investigation because I'd call the police. The police would come and probably forensic units, you know, would show up. There'd be an investigation. There'd be a demand for justice, right? Because we're going to want to know, how did this horrific thing happen? That's how we react, right? Now, Take that same situation and the body that you walk up upon is the body of a dead squirrel. Well, you probably wouldn't react the exact same way that you would if it was a human being, would you? I mean, if you thought anything at all, you might think, oh, poor thing, you know, and then move on with your day. But the squirrel community is not going to hold an investigation. The forensic unit isn't coming out. It's just that the squirrel is dead and life goes on, right? Right? despite what organizations like PETA says, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, human beings know that human life holds value that an animal does not, okay? There's a reason we react that way, right? When there's a human being in pain, right? It, it, we can't even look, right? We want to turn away, right? You don't take your grandma to the doctor and put her down when she gets old and she can't walk anymore, do you? We don't do that, no. But you do do that with your dog, right? After your dog is suffering and in pain, it it makes you sad, of course. Like we, my family just had to put down our family dog uh, down in Texas about four months ago, and it was sad, right? My family cried, and and that dog was with us for a long time, but, but he's a dog, and you can get a new one, and then you'll feel better. You can't get a new grandma, right? Here's the deal. There's, so there's, you have intrinsic value as a human being, and there's three primary things that God made you to do, right? And we see that in Genesis 1. Number one, it says that God made people to rule over creation. God says in verse 8, he says, subdue the earth. So that means that animals don't rule over us. There's no planet of the apes happening. That's, not, that's a movie. It's not going to happen in real life. Animals don't rule over us, right? We rule over the rest of Creation, now this does not mean that we can be cruel to animals, okay? Because we're called to be stewards, right? We're to take care of creation, not destroy God's creation, right? And secondly, it says that God made people to be fruitful and multiply. God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And here we see one of the main purposes of marriage, it's to procreate. What are we multiplying? We're multiplying God's image bearers, Right? For God's glory, we're multiplying God's image across the face of the earth. And lastly, God made people to enjoy him and his creation. We didn't read it, but verse 29, he he tells Adam, he says, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. God makes man and woman. He plants them in the Garden of Eden in this perfect paradise. And he says, I've given you all of this for you to enjoy, and I want you to enjoy it. Because he wants us to enjoy him and enjoy the good gifts that he has given us. So you were made to rule over creation, to be fruitful and multiply, and to enjoy God and his creation. Now, there's a question that comes up. If we're made in the image of God, then how are we like God and how are we not like God? Because we we can't really say like that we're exactly like God, right? There's obviously some differences, but there's obviously some similarities because we're made in his image. How are we like God? Here's seven seven ways that we are like God and therefore unlike the rest of creation. Number one, we can form relationships. We can form relationships with one another and with God. Animals can't do that. I have a dog named Timbit. I love Timbit. He's a great dog. He's named after Tim Horton's Donut Holes, yes. His name is Timbit. But Timbit is not worried about what other dogs in the neighborhood think about him, right? He's not like... Sitting in the house going, oh gosh, I barked at that dog yesterday. I hope he's not mad at me anymore. Right? Dogs don't do that. Timbit does not seek the Lord with his whole heart. He, he doesn't pray, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He just knows, dad gives me food, and that's what I want. That's what Timbit does. We can form relationships. Secondly, we have emotions, right? We love, like we hate, right? We, we, we have these, these strong emotions that uh, are from God. God created those. We can choose to disregard instinct, right? So we don't always operate off of instinct, right? Sometimes, like, you know, you've uh, read stories in the news about where somebody will lay their life down for another person. You know, the tigers at the zoo zoo don't go on a hunger strike for better living conditions, right? The tiger just knows, like, when they put food in my cage, I'm going to eat it because I'm hungry. Fourth, we have a sense of right and wrong. We, we know between right and wrong. Now, I know that some of you may have animals, and you're like, well, my animal has a sense of right and wrong. Because whenever I scold him and he does something bad, he goes, cowers in the corner, and he tucks his tail between his legs and stuff like that. Here's the deal. Your, your animal is not doing that because he feels guilty. He's doing that because it's a learned instinct, and he knows that that's when, what's going to keep him from getting in trouble. And here's why I know that that is true. All right? When you do something bad, you oftentimes are still thinking about it four days later. You're sitting there like, man, I just can't believe I did that. I can't believe that, that, that I disobeyed God in that thing, or I can't believe that I, I talked to my kids that way. My dog Timbit is not sulking in the corner because last week he got into our trash and he's just sitting there thinking, God, I can't believe I did that. I'm such a bad boy. He's not doing that. He's over it, right? He's moved on. He's a happy dog and life is good. He's not feeling guilt and shame. Fifth, we're like God in that we rule over creation. Now, we don't rule in the same way that God rules, but God has given us authority, right? Kind of like the owner of a restaurant would give the manager of a restaurant authority to manage, right? That's what stewards are. They're managers. So we rule over creation. Zebras don't put you in the zoo. You put zebras in the zoo. Sixth, we can worship. And we can delight in creation. So, again, my dog does not whimsically gaze at a sunset and just, you know, in awe over the majesty of God. He's not brought to tears by a piece of music, a beautiful piece of music. He's a dog. But human beings are, right? Like those things can elicit worship to rise up in our hearts and these emotions. And you ever had those chill bumps maybe when you've heard a powerful, you've seen a powerful moment in a movie or in a song, right? That's from God. And lastly, like God, we create. We can create and invent new things. I mean, just look at where we are today from where we were 2,000 years ago. It's pretty amazing. Even 100 years ago, human beings can do amazing things. Like God, we can create. Now, how are we unlike God? Seven more things. So we can create, but we cannot recreate ex nihilo. That word ex nihilo means out of nothing. Okay? So when God created the earth, he created it out of nothing. There was nothing there and God just spoke and things came into being. Now, if anybody in this room could do that, you'd be really, really rich. If you could just create things out of nothing and just like speak and something appeared into your hands, well, you'd be well off and we wouldn't have to keep fundraising money anymore for our church because your tithes would take care of us, right? Just kidding. God created ex nihilo. Secondly, God knows the hearts, minds, and intentions of man. God can see through the fluff. He knows your motives. He knows your intentions. Third, God is omnipresent, omniscient, omniscient, and omnipotent. That means he is everywhere. He knows everything, and he is all-powerful. We're not. We're limited in our knowledge. We're limited in where we can be. I can only be in one place at one time. We're limited in our power, right? Fourth, God cannot do wrong. It's impossible for God to do wrong. If God were to do wrong, he would cease to be God. God is not a man. He's not a human being. God cannot die. God has power over death. God can't cease to be. He's not flesh and blood like we are. He has always existed and he always will exist. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He has no beginning and no end. God is spirit we're flesh. So that's another way God is spirit. And seventh we cannot break the bounds of space and time and the laws of physics, but God transcends space and time. He's not bound within them. So we started by saying that there's lots of confusion that's led to brokenness and chaos. God made us in his image. We just talked about the ways in which we're like God and, and the ways in which we're, we're not like God, which means that we're special, but we're not that special. And I think sometimes we, we start to put ourselves on the same plane as God, and maybe we even want to kind of take charge of our life and, and just kind of push God to the side because we're just tired of His rules that constrain us, right? And so we want to put ourselves over God, and that's exactly what went wrong in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve rejected Psalm 102 and 3, where it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. They forgot that. They forgot that they were made in his image to worship him and to, to enjoy him and to, and to be his stewards. And instead, they, they said, we're going to take charge and we're going to be our own bosses. We don't need to stay within God's design. We can create our own design. Right? And so in the pride of their hearts, they rebelled against God. And guess what? All of us have done that. All of us. Every single one of us has done it. We've made it about our glory and we've rejected our very identity as people made in God's image. So this decision has had massive consequences. So I just want to, what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to go through some of the consequences that we're seeing right now in our culture and that we're going to talk about the solution. So these are the consequences. This is what we get when we lose that human beings are made in the image of God. So scientifically, it's now proven that life begins at conception. Okay. The American College of Pediatricians, which is a secular organization, by the way, says this. It says, The predominance of human biological research confirms that human life begins at conception or fertilization. So all the DNA strands, everything that's needed for life is in the womb at the point of conception. Uh, Psalm chapter 139 clearly affirms this as well. Listen to this beautiful passage of Scripture. It says, God says he says I formed you I for you or no sorry David says to God for you formed my inward parts you knitted me together in my mother's womb I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made wonderful are your works my soul knows it very well my frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth your eyes saw my unformed substance In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Even abortion advocates today, with with abortion advocates, the, the argument has shifted. The argument is no longer, that's not a person. The argument is, the life and the comfort of the mother are more important. It's very similar to the Canaanites... In the Old Testament, they used to sacrifice their children upon the altar to Moloch. Today, we're sacrificing children upon the altar of the God of comfort and autonomy. In many cases, people are attempting to play God by selective abortion. I don't know if you guys are aware of some of this, so it might be hard to hear, but I think we need to talk about it. It's now called family planning. Here's some dark and heartbreaking realities. In America today, as many black babies are aborted as are born. Let that sink in. As many black babies are aborted as born. In Denmark, 98% of pregnancies with a Down syndrome diagnosis are terminated. In France, it's 77%. In the United States, it's 67%. Iceland recently boasted that they have eliminated Down syndrome, not because they found a cure, they haven't found a cure, They've eliminated down syndrome because babies they are because down syndrome babies every single one is aborted in the womb 100%. 100% of down syndrome babies are aborted in the womb. Church, I'm just going to go ahead and call this what it is. It's murder and it's wicked. It's wicked. Who deceives people's minds into justifying the taking of a human life? Who does that? Anybody know? Satan. Absolutely. Satan does. You know why? Because Satan hates God. And he hates people made in the image of God. He hates every single person in this room. He hates every single person out there. Now, I recognize that there is a real possibility that there may be women in here who have had an abortion. So I want to speak to that for a minute. There is not a single person in here who's innocent. Not one. All of us are guilty before a holy God. And here's the deal. Jesus said, if you, if you even hate your brother, if you have hate in your heart towards your brother, or even if you call them a fool, that you're liable to judgment. That you're guilty enough for the fire of hell. So, I'll admit, there's been times in my life where I've hated somebody, right? Where I've wanted to pummel somebody. And so, the Bible says that I'm guilty too. That I need that grace, and I need that forgiveness. So, if you've had an abortion, then this morning what we're talking about might be hard for you to hear, but it's your first step towards freedom from the weight of guilt and shame. Because maybe you've been bearing it down, but I know for a fact that we carry around guilt and shame. And what I'm trying to tell you this morning is that you don't have to anymore. This morning you can lay it down at the foot of Jesus Christ. First John chapter 1 says, if we say we have no sin, then we're only deceiving ourselves. But if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Everything that you've done. I don't care where you've been. I don't care what you've done. Jesus says that if you lay it down before him, you confess it, you bring it to him and you say, Jesus, I need your forgiveness and I know that you died on the cross for me and that your blood can cover my sins. Will you please have mercy on me and it will go away just like that and you'll be white as snow. God will not see your guilt and your sin anymore and he will lift that shame off of you right now. You don't have to keep carrying it with you anymore. That's why Jesus came to die for you and then he rose from the dead. But we covered uh, I briefly touched on euthanasia a bit earlier. Euthanasia would be the, uh, basically the termination of a life. Um, uh, when you take your dog to the veterinarian, they euthanize the dog when the dog is terminally ill. And right now, euthanasia of human life is uh, becoming more and more prevalent uh, across our world. And again, there's a reason that we can stomach putting the dog down, but we can't stomach the thought of putting our relative down, right? It just sounds absurd when you think about that. But what about, you may, ask, you may be thinking or you may be asking me, well, Jared, what about somebody who's terminally ill and they're in great pain and anguish? What about that? How does that change things? I want to read a quote by Joe Carter, uh, who's a, a pastor in Canada. He, he writes a lot of blogs for the Gospel Coalition. And here's what he said. He said the dying are still the living and their inherent worth is not diminished simply because the remaining moments on earth are few. The dying are still the living. Regardless of how terminally ill they are, they are still a human being made in the image of God and they have dignity. And, and, and here's, here's the thing, guys. We did not give ourselves life. We do not have the authority to take it. Not even our own. Not even our own. Doctor-assisted suicide is still suicide. Just because it happens in a sterile room by people with white coats behind a curtain, doesn't change it. Incredibly, physician-assisted suicide would have been considered insane throughout the entire history of the world up until about 50 years ago. Like, it was just unthinkable. And suddenly... But when we lose the, the image of God, when we lose the, what's called the imago Dei, which is just another way to say the image of God, then we lose the sanctity of human life. We, we lose the value of it, and suddenly people become disposable. When we stop seeing people as made in the image of God, we'll start seeing them as things that exist for our comfort, convenience, or enjoyment, or things that we can kind of just discard whenever they become too much of a burden. And if you think that sounds crazy and that there's no way that would actually happen, I promise you, it can, if we lose the image of God. The institution of slavery has always stood on the idea that people are property, hasn't it? Right? It views some races or classes of people as less valuable than others. I mean, think about it, Nazi Germany Slavery in the American South, apartheid in South Africa, these are all image of God issues, every single one of them. Failing to see other people as humans with dignity made in God's image simply because of the color of their skin or, uh, skin or simply because of you know an outward feature or because of a, a religious belief or an ethnic origin, right? Pornography is another image of God issue. Did you know that on the, lo- the world's largest pornography site, in, two, in 2016 alone, 92 billion porn videos were watched. That equates to 12 and a half videos for every person on the planet, on one site, in one year. Porn is the degradation and dehumanizing of other real human beings. It turns people into objects of pleasure that exist to make you feel good, and it fuels the actual mistreatment of men and women, and let's be honest, women receive the brunt of this mistreatment. If you think that the the whole Me Too movement that's kind of risen at the same time that the pornography industry is taking off is a coincidence, it's not, because as as men begin to saturate their minds with this garbage, right, and they begin to have these, they put these expectations on women and think that this this fantasy world that they're living in is somehow how women should treat them and then they go and they place these expectations on women and that's why you see sexual assault and harassment skyrocketing and then and then women are are beginning to be influenced to feel like well now I have to act that way and if I if I want to be accepted by my boyfriend or by my husband then I need to do the same things that that we see on these videos Matt Chandler says this. He says, Where the imago day or the image of God is not understood, it is the weak and the vulnerable who are abused and consumed. Where the imago day has been fractured, women will bear the brunt of evil in the world. It is women who will most often be consumed. It will be women who are most often not valued. It will be small children. It's true. When you see women, guys, when you see women as people made in the image of God, you can't look at them as objects for your pleasure anymore. It's not compatible. As Yeah. She's not she's not your plaything. <laughs> women are not your plaything. They're not they're not an object for your enjoyment. And I'm I'm going to try not to get a, ahead of myself. Uh, here because we're going to talk some more about this later on but watching pornography honestly is about the least manly thing anybody could do. It's about the least manly thing that anybody could do. That's not what makes a man a man. Boys can watch pornography. It makes boys punks. It does. Real men protect women. They don't use and abuse women. All right. So that's just some real talk for me to all the guys in here. It doesn't make you a man. I want to briefly speak to sexual harassment and assault. I wasn't going to talk about this, but this morning as I was praying, I felt like, um, I, felt like I needed to. I felt like I needed to talk about this. And, and also, as I was praying, I don't, I, don't know, I don't know, there may be somebody in here, but I really felt like God impressed upon me this morning as I was praying that there's somebody in this room um, who you have been carrying around shame for your entire life. And I don't know if it's because uh, you were abused or because you were the abuser, I don't really know, uh, but I really felt the Lord strongly impress on me that there's somebody here and you carried shame into this room this morning and God wants you to put it down. God wants you to put it down. He wants you to know that he'll take it away today. I want to speak to sexual harassment and assault. This is also an image of God issue because it's an assault on the image of God. When we assault a person or harass a person, we're doing that to somebody who's made in God's image. So, ladies and guys who have been assaulted or harassed, I want you to hear me. Whatever anyone did or said to you does not diminish your intrinsic value at all. At all. You understand? It does not diminish your value one bit. It was not your fault. You are not worthless. You are not damaged goods. You are made in the image of God. God and in Christ Jesus that shame that you feel doesn't have to be on you anymore because when Jesus was stripped naked and they put a mockery of a sign above him on the cross and he was nailed and he was spat upon and they publicly shamed him your shame died along with Jesus on that cross he took it for you In God's eyes, you are pure, you are clean, and you are new, white as snow. You guys see why the doctrine of being made in the image of God matters? Yeah? Do you see how it touches almost every single facet of our culture and our society right now? This is such an important thing to understand. It has massive implications for our culture. All of us have failed at upholding the imago Dei in our life, the image of God, okay? None of us have perfectly represented God, right? We've all sinned, and, and uh, one, one popular analogy is that we're like broken mirrors, right? So you can see the image of God in us, but it's fractured, right? But Jesus came to restore it. See, Jesus is the perfect image of God. In fact, not only is he the perfect image of God, he is God. Colossians 1:15 and 19 says that Jesus he is the image of the invisible God. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Jesus came and he did what you couldn't do. He did perfectly represent God and then he did for he died for what you didn't do. So he came to do what you couldn't do and then he did for you. He died for you for what you didn't do. I'm sorry that was really confusing it was a typo on my manuscript. Jesus died for our failure to uphold the Imago Dei in our lives. He perfectly upheld God's image, and then he died to take away the punishment, and then he rose from the dead, and he's alive. And he's on his throne in heaven, and he's promised that he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to restore all things to himself. So while the image of God might be marred and smeared in us, It's not in Jesus. And when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior, here's what he does. 2 Corinthians 3.18 describes it perfectly. Here's what happens when you place your faith and trust in Jesus. It says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is Spirit. So, God, when you are born again, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus for the first time and you are changed and you become a new creation, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and he begins to change you. And he begins to change you and restore that image of God in you. And he promises that he's going to complete the job until one day you stand before God holy and blameless and with no fear. That's the good news of the gospel. We don't deserve it, but we get it as a free gift. We're gonna close in prayer, and then we'll have some discussion questions up on the board about these things. Uh, and then we will, uh, after the discussion questions, we'll have a closing song in our offering. So uh, let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your word, and God, we thank you for making us. I mean, how how often do we really take time to thank you for the for the breath that we draw? It's your breath in our lungs. So we pour out our praise. We pour out our praise. God, how often do we thank you for even making us? I mean, we spend most of our time complaining about what we don't have, and yet you actually gave us the gift of life. And you made us in your image. You didn't make us an animal that cannot think and cannot feel. You made us relational beings to love one another and to love you. And God, we've all departed from that. And, and we don't love you and serve you as we should. And we, we turn on you and then we, we, we hate our neighbor and we, uh, we're cruel to our neighbors and we don't love our neighbors as we should. And yet, God, you are still merciful and gracious. And you loved us so much that you came on a rescue mission from heaven to come and die for us on the cross. And then, you didn't stay in the grave, but by your own power, you raised from, you rose from the dead. I pray that if there's anybody in this room that does not know you as their Lord and Savior and they have not committed to follow you, I pray that right now in this moment that you would grant them the gift of faith and that they would say yes. I pray for anybody in here who's been carrying shame, carrying guilt, God, I pray that right now they would lay it at the feet of Jesus and that you would just lift it off of their shoulders and that it would be gone never to return. That they would believe the word that you have spoken. You are white as snow. I have made you clean. Whom the sun sets free is free indeed. God, we love you and we worship you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.